So tonight I'd like to talk about spiritual urgency. Can everybody hear me? Uh, the Pali word is Sangvega, and it's a hard word to translate because it actually covers three clusters of feelings. Normally we think about it as the urgency, but actually the first two feelings are a sense of shock and dismay at realizing the futility and the meaninglessness of life as we've normally lived it. The second feeling is a remorse at the complacency in having let ourselves live so blindly. And then following on that is the sense of urgency to find our way out of the meaningless cycle of birth, death, and aging. So it's that combination of urgency, shock, and remorse. Sangvega is a spiritual emotion, and it's one of the positive spiritual emotions. We often hear about the negative ones. And it leads to, as Janet talked about last night, the cultivation of the paramis of resolve, renunciation, patience. And it's interesting when you start to look at urgency, it doesn't stand alone as a spiritual emotion. It actually works together with another spiritual emotion in Pali called pasada, which means clarity or confidence. And pasada, or this clarity or confidence, is what keeps uh, the sangvega, or the urgency, from turning into despair. We just felt that shock and that dismay. We might get disheartened. So pasada gives us direction and faith in the wake of the urgency. And a good example of that is the Buddha's story where he saw old age, sickness, and death, the first three heavenly messengers, and there was that feeling of, oh my God. And then he saw the fourth messenger, the renunciate, which gave him hope. So spiritual urgency occurs in all traditions. It's not just the Buddhist path. And it has phases as it matures. It begins often with the calling or the urge to awaken, and then it moves into we get challenged once we have that call and we get challenged. And then it can culminate in a constancy and a sense of maturity of connection to the truth. The calling or the initial urge to practice, it often starts with disenchantment. Maybe just taking a moment to reflect on your own calling to practice. What was that about? What was that like, that first sense of urgency that you had? And can you bring that forth to support you on this retreat? That urgency is always with us. That initial fire that we have, bringing that forth. I had to laugh because I thought, I think I was 23, and I had my whole group doing poly chanting of the precepts, and At that time, nobody really knew much about Pali at all, and I didn't either. I didn't even know the pronunciations, but there was so much fire there to 
get people to recite Pali. <laughs> so Prince Siddhartha started with this same sense of disenchantment or disillusionment with the wealth and splendor of his life. And I think in America we have probably similar conditions and we're able to see through that wealth and splendor and to want to look for something deeper. In the suttas, there's a story of disenchantment that relates to a dog and a bone. And this is kind of a um, description of that sutta. A dog stumbles across a bone that has been exposed to the elements for many months and is therefore bleached of any residual flesh or marrow. The dog gnaws on it for some time before he finally determines that he is not finding any satisfaction in the bone, and he turns away from it in disgust. It is not that the bone is intrinsically disgusting. It is rather the case that the dog's raging desire for meat just will not be satisfied by the bone. He is enchanted by the prospect of gratification as he scrapes away furiously at the bone. But when he finally wakes up to the truth that the bone is empty of anything that will offer him satisfaction, he becomes disenchanted and spits it out in disgust. So often that first phase of urgency is kind of a spitting out of the world as we know it. And that can take many forms. Maybe it means we leave the real world to come to IMS. We spit out that world of doing. We simplify our life. We decide to ordain even. Thomas Merton said this kind of spitting out the real world. It was, he has a nice quotation. I came to the monastery in revolt against the meaningless confusion of a life in which there was so much activity, so much movement, so much useless talk, so much superficial and needless stimulation that I could not remember who I was. How many of us came to IMS for that reason? There was so much stimulation, we couldn't remember who we were anymore. That's urgency, disenchantment. The urgency can take many interesting forms. One of my favorite stories that I've had for years is from, I think it's pronounced Parabola or Parabola magazine about a man locked in a freezer. And it's a story within a story. A professor who met this man is talking about his story. <clears throat> it seemed like a typical first class of a new year for the self-knowledge symposium. A room full of college students rigidly looking at each other, nobody willing to be the first one to speak up. So, as I often do, I started asking each one why they'd come. Halfway around the room, I came to him. He was a healthy, well-built guy, and I could see that he was five years older than the rest. He spoke softly, barely audible, as he looked me straight in the eye. <clears throat> he said this, Up until a year ago, I was a maintenance manager from a large plant that made ice cream. I'm from a small town. 
out in the country, and this plant is the biggest business around. I liked the job. For a kid with no college education, the money was great. I had a lot of responsibility. Not only did I have a job, but I also had a girlfriend in a new car. I thought I had it made. Then, late one Friday night, I was going over everything one last time before the weekend. Everyone else had gone home, and I was anxious to leave myself. I went into the freezer to check the stock when the door behind me swung shut and locked. The light went out, just like that. I was trapped in a freezer at 40 below zero in jeans and a t-shirt, and no one around for miles. I was certain I was dead. I panicked. The door was locked, there was no one around, and even if there had been, the noise from the compressors would have drowned out my screams. And still, I threw myself at the door, screaming and beating at it. I was so cold that I broke every bone in both my hands and felt nothing. He paused. Faint smile came to his lips. You know, I always thought I was religious. I went to church on Sundays, said my prayer, went to Bible study, you know, that sort of thing. But when I was in that freezer, there was only one thing going on in my head. A voice kept screaming, oh my God. I'm dying, I'm dying, I'm dying and I don't know if there's a God. I don't know what's going to happen to me when I die. This one thought was so intense that I don't remember anything else until I found myself outside the freezer, crumpled up on the floor, sobbing. Now you'd think that since I was in charge of maintenance, I'd have known that a safety door had been installed the day before, but I didn't. And I don't know to this day how I found it in the dark or how I opened it, but I did, and I'm alive. I was in the hospital for five days and off work for six weeks. When I came back to work, I walked into my boss's office and quit. I left my home and my girlfriend, and I spent the next year just wandering around the country. And then I signed up for college because I couldn't think of anything else to do because I still don't know the answer to that last intense thought. I don't know what's hap going to happen to me when I die or if there is a God. But I do know, all I do know, is that I will spend the rest of my life trying to find out. And then the teacher comments, I'm often asked why I founded the Self-Knowledge Symposium. The answer is simple. I founded the symposium for that person in all of us, still trapped in a freezer, alone, searching for God. So like the man in the freezer, it's shifting our lives more inward, moving from outward to inward. The Buddha did that with his six years of practices. Something similar when we come to IMS, it's resetting our intention to look inside. Pali seems to have a word for everything, and they have a word for this too. It's called opanayiko which is staying within oneself. 
Judy Willie has a better phrase that I like. It's called going down and in. That sense of going down and in into your body and mind. And of course, that's what we're doing on retreat. Part of that urgency is to go down and in. And that's what retreat, the word retreat really means. It's we're retreating from life so we can be in here in the heart-mind more. The Islamics have kind of a more functional way of describing this. It's the hen does not lay eggs in the marketplace. (laughs) So we need to pull away at least temporarily if we want to lay those insight eggs. Part of going down and in on retreat is uh, what I've mentioned the other morning, stopping that need to know everything and be in everyone's business. Trungpa described it as eye candy. The bulletin board is eye candy. (laughs) What other people are doing is eye candy. And do we really need this stuff? Seeing that. My Burmese teacher, Ukundala, used to say when you're on retreat, he said, pretend like you're a feeble old person and you can't see or hear much of anything. When you start to get in your 40s, that gets a lot easier. Um, (laughs) It's interesting because I've worked with people in their 80s and 90s much of my life before I came here. And interestingly enough, that kind of happens naturally. Um, After starting at about age 70, you start to lose about 30% of all your sense doors, your taste, your hearing, your sight. And really what that is, it's a preparation for death and a a sense of going down and in and being present with yourself and really developing that inner world so when we let go of this life, there's that sense of readiness. So that inwardness is just not for the sake of going in, but we're actually not just turning away from the world, but we're turning towards something. And that's where the pasada or the second, the confidence, that second spiritual emotion is we're turning towards something we have confidence in. So, okay, the world doesn't do it. We spit out that bone. What, what will do it? What do we have confidence in? Now, the Buddha didn't just turn away from the palace life. He turned toward mindfulness and freedom. So once we've made that commitment to our calling, like the man in the freezer, then we get down to the nitty-gritty of how to live it. And once we come here, we see what community life is like, and those are the challenges. Mary Oliver talks in her poem about the journey. Many of you have heard it, that sense of, you know, you know what you have to do and you do it. And then the poem goes on further to say, once you make that commitment, the whole house trembles, voices cry at us, the wind pries its stiff fingers at our very foundations, and the melancholy is terrible. So those are the challenges. And the Buddha, of course, was challenged on the night 
of his enlightenment by Mara. You know, do you really think this is the truth? Do you really want to do this? Oh, yeah? This is what you want to turn towards? Well, let me give you some things to distract you and to feel uncomfortable about. And the Buddha, in that sense of combining the urgency and the confidence, touched the earth and said, yes, I have a right to be here. That's spiritual urgency. That's confidence. It's remembering this touching the earth. You know, when the greed, hatred, and delusion come up. Achan Amaro, in his new book, Small Boat, Great Mountain, he talks about a practice of continually asking yourself, is this freedom? Is there freedom in this? So, you know, even if we're mad at somebody here or something, even if we're right, and we always think we're right, even if we are right, is there freedom in that? by just asking yourself the question, is there freedom in this mind state? Another way we're challenged on retreat and in life with our urgency is in our excuses. Now that tendency that something will be better later. There's a nice reading on this by Gutang Rinpoche. I spent 20 years not wanting to practice Dharma. I spent the next 20 years thinking that I could practice later on. I spent another 20 years in other activities and regretting the fact that I hadn't engaged in Dharma. This is the story of my human life. On retreat, this happens when we, and I notice this a lot during my six weeks, uh, this fall, it, that sense of I'll be happier when, my practice will be better when, after lunch, when I'm not hungry, after I have my coffee in the morning, after the heat comes on. <laughs> you know, and I started to get really curious. Well, what is it that the mind thinks will really be better later? <laughs> Where is this? What's happening here? Is, is that really true? And there was one really neat day when um, you guys served chocolate cake. It happened twice in the six weeks. And um, I was eating my vegetables, and Janet came out with this big chocolate cake. And I was like, oh, I have to get through the vegetables so I can get to the cake. I'll be so much happier when I'm eating that cake. And then all of a sudden I said, wait, whoa, wait a minute, what's happening? Is that really true? I'll be happier when I'm eating the cake. And it was like, no, it's, it's really okay to be eating these vegetables. And then in that moment I just thought, I loved eating those vegetables. It didn't matter whether I ever got to the cake. And that that was just this complete story 
that was keeping me from seeing how perfect the vegetables were in that moment. Because there was an idea I'll be happier when. So the Buddha spoke of some traditional ways to arouse and support our spiritual urgency. He actually offers two sets of reflections in the suttas to strengthen urgency. These are the reflections on the eight senses of urgency and reflections on the four dangers. I'm going to read the eight senses of urgency. Or maybe just reflecting on them as I read them. The urgency due to birth. The urgency due to old age. The urgency due to disease. The urgency due to death. The urgency due to the suffering of lower existences the animal realms and the other realms, the urgency due to the suffering of the past rooted in the cycle of rebirth, the urgency due to the suffering of the future rooted in the cycle of rebirth. That's the, it'll be better, I'll be happier when I get that cake. (laughs) And the urgency due to the suffering of the present rooted in the search for food now that really stopped me in my tracks. He, really, he actually says, the suffering of the present rooted in the search for food. So it's no wonder we think about lunch all the time. And using that <laughs> to awaken our sangheka. For the urgency due to old age, disease, and death, um, there's a common recitation amongst the nuns Amravati monks and nuns are actually doing it as we're on retreat, and they're on retreat, they do this. And I've actually started to do it every day, and I found it to be quite helpful. It really brings a sense of urgency for me. I am the, the nature to age. I have not gone beyond aging. I am of the nature to sicken. I have not gone beyond sickness. I am of the nature to die, I have not gone beyond dying. All that is mine, beloved and pleasing, will become otherwise, will become separated from me. I am the owner of my karma, heir to my karma, born of my karma, related to my karma. Abide and supported by my karma, whatever I shall do for good or for ill, of that I will be the heir. The fourth one, all that is mine, beloved and pleasing, will become, otherwise will become separated from me. That always kind of stops me in my tracks every day. So the second set of reflections the Buddha offered in the suttas for helping with urgency are the reflections on the four dangers. And these are from the Anguttanikaya, 
and they can also be reflected on daily. Uh, The Buddha repeated this one about death, since that's a good reflection for urgency. Death threatens us from all sides. It's danger number one. And death could happen at any time. Danger number two, the conditions of practice may never be so good. Proper food, proper lodging, not being too ill or too old. Danger number three, there may not always be teachers around. Now is the time. Danger number four, the Sangha will someday decline. Now is the time. Then he offered some further textual references for each. I'm just going to briefly touch on death may happen at any time. As a little poem that he included, a blessed one said, like massive boulders, mountains pressing against the sky, moving in from all sides, crushing the four directions, so aging and death come rolling over living beings whether noble warriors, priests, merchants, workers, outcasts, and scavengers, death spares nothing. It tramples everything. Here, elephant troops can hold no ground, nor can chariots of infantry, nor can a battle of wits or wealth win out. So a wise person, seeing his own good, steadfast, secures confidence in the Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha. Elephant troops can hold nor no ground nor a battle of wits or wealth. That sense of you know what doesn't work, turning away and turning toward the pasada, the confidence in the Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha. Danger number two: the conditions of practice may never be so good. He adds to that. There is a case where a monk or nun reminds him or herself of this. At present, I am young, black-haired, endowed with the blessings of youth in the first stage of life. The time will come, though, when this body is beset by old age. With old age, it is not easy to pay attention to the Buddhist teachings. At present, I am free from illness and discomfort, endowed with good digestion, not too cold, not too hot, of medium strength and tolerance. The time will come, though, when this body is beset with illness, when one is overcome with illness, and it is not easy to pay attention to the Buddhist teachings. At present, food is plentiful. I'm just reflecting on here. It is easy to maintain oneself through the food offered here. The time will come, though, when there is famine, food is scarce and hard to come by. It is not easy and will not be easy to maintain this body and mind. When food is scarce, it will not be easy to pay attention to the Buddhist teachings. You know, we live in the world right now with the uncertainty of terrorism. 
and environmental changes, and really that sense of what he says, that anything could happen at any time, and using this for our urgency in practicing this retreat. And the idea that there's not always going to be teachers around. You know, thinking of all the wonderful teachers we have. We have thousands and thousands of Dharma books. And all the people that carried the Dharma from the West to here. Joseph, Sharon, Jack, Deepama, many Zen teachers and Tibetan teachers. Just that sense of grace of having so much teaching available. And lastly, he says the Sangha will someday decline. And he comments, the Buddha comments, and furthermore, the monk or nun reminds him or herself, at present the Sangha, in harmony on friendly terms, without quarreling, lives in comfort with a single recitation. The time will come, though, when the Sangha splits. When the Sangha splits, it will not be easy to pay attention to the Buddhist teachings. And thinking of the Sangha here now and our appreciation and gratitude for how the IMS community supports us in practice, all the volunteers that are here, and we're not fighting, not yet. <laughs> so the urgencies of birth, old age, disease, death, good fortune of physical conditions, good fortune of having access to the Sangha and the teachings. So Sangvega starts with the spinning out of the world like the dog with the bone. And then it's the turning inward, going down and in to something more fulfilling. And eventually, our urgency matures to kind of a final phase, which actually is somewhat rare. But it's a sense of continual or constant connection with our urgency and confidence and practice. Now, even the Buddha, after his full awakening, he still meditated all the time. And he said, you know, there was a sense of what it was the best thing to do with his mind. So a constancy can develop. Uh, Deepama had this, and a, a friend of mine, who's an incredible practitioner through a, uh, a disability that has brought him extreme amount of pain all the time. And he described it as that the mind passes over, eventually passes over into a state where mindfulness is the norm rather than distraction. So it was good to hear that, that it's possible to shift the default mode of the mind to one of constant mindfulness pretty much, and that it was it's rare for him, he said, to uh, find himself distracted anymore. And this constancy can come in different flavors. 
there's a constancy that's like fire. And Upandita used to talk about this. He'd say, when the world is on fire, what kind of fire extinguisher do you have? He used to ask me, where's your fire extinguisher? Everything's on fire. You know, in that sense of always uh, being present because of seeing that fire. The Buddha talked in his fire sermon about this. The all is a flame. Which all is a flame? The eye is a flame. Forms are a flame. Eye consciousness is a flame. Eye contact is a flame. And anything that arises in dependence on eye contact experienced as pleasure, pain, or neither pleasure nor pain, that too is a flame. A flame with what? A flame with the fire of passion, the fire of aversion, the fire of delusion. A flame, I tell you, with birth, aging, death, sorrows, lamentations, pains, distresses, and despairs. The ear is a flame. Sounds are a flame. The nose is a flame. Aromas are a flame. The tongue is a flame. Flavors are a flame. The body is a flame. Sensations are a flame. The intellect is a flame. Ideas are a flame. Intellect consciousness is a flame. Intellect contact is a flame. And whatever there is that arises in dependence on intellect contact, experienced as pleasure, pain, or neither pleasure or pain, that too is a flame. A flame with what? Flame with the fire of passion, the fire of aversion, the fire of delusion. A flame, I tell you, with birth, aging, death, sorrows, lamentations, pains, distresses, and despair. So that's one form of constancy. (laughs) There's also the path of constancy where the urgency is of love. Not to say that that isn't love. A Hindu teacher described it as the time will come when one wishes that 24 hours should be 25 in order to love one hour more. That's urgency. Hmm. Deepama was a good example of this. She said her mind had come to a place where mindfulness and loving kindness were one and where the practice never left her She was always in that state. The Christian mystics uh, seem to develop their urgency through the path of love a lot. They talk about constant communication with God or the beloved, sense of marrying and union where prayer is every moment at all times. So could our mindfulness be like a prayer that happens all the time out of love and connection? St. John of the Cross described it well. He said, I no longer tend the herd, nor have I any other work, now that my every act is love, 
Love works so in me that whether things go well or badly, love turns them into one sweetness. It's a constancy where every act is love, where every place is our altar, every person is our altar, community is our altar, conflict is our altar, humiliation, embarrassment, joy, sorrow, neutrality, shame. We put it all up here on this altar like Bird did on opening night. And we share it together. out of the urgency to be free, together. So Samvega, it starts out with the spitting out of that dry bone, turning away in disgust. But in the end, it's about finding taste, the taste of truth, of one sweetness. When you think about it, it's really why we come back to retreat over and over again. Why we suffer through life at IMF. Why we sit every day. There's this taste we want to keep knowing. The taste of freedom. And that sweetness. It's a nice way to end from spitting out the bone to sweetness. I'd like to close with a little story from a friend of mine who died this year. His name was Father Theophane. And he wrote uh, a book called Tales of the Magic Monastery. And when I was writing about Deepama, he sent me a whole bunch of unpublished stories. And uh, this one kind of uh, addresses that issue about freedom. He seemed to understand. Yes, he said, I spent some years in prison. Those bars, those bars, I saw them in my sleep even. I wasn't just physically in prison, I was totally in prison, day and night, week after week, month after month, year after year. Oh, I got plenty of advice, the clergy, the social workers, the spiritual teachers, friends, books. But the bars, always those bars. I tried defiance, I tried hobbies, I tried tears and rage and laughter and correspondence and work, lots of work. But always those bars. I thought, if only I could get away even for a day to experience a bit of freedom, then maybe I could come back and endure this. But there was never any relief. After years of this, one night, an old man came to my cell. Maybe it was just a dream. I heard him say just one word, enough. What did he mean? I wished he could come back so I could ask him what he meant. 
but he never came back. His word grew in me enough. It did battle with my bars day after day. Who would win? His word won. The bars dissolved before my eyes. I was free. I am free. You can be free. Enough. Let's sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.